This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by the patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast. This amazing group of individuals contribute financially to the Rural Woman Podcast to ensure the stories of women in agriculture hit your earbuds each and every week. Want to join them in supporting the stories of women in agriculture while getting access to extended episodes, patron-only episodes, and other great perks? Head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch, or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women, and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today, you'll meet Melody Garner-Skiba, a versatile leader in agriculture, bringing 23 years of diverse industry experience, including recent roles as the executive director of the Alberta Sugar Beet Growers and president of the Canadian Sugar Beet Producers. Now dedicated to managing her family ranch and running her own consulting firm, she is also the president of the Lethbridge Therapeutic Riding Association and the recipient of the 2023 Women in Ag Award. Driven by her passion for building strong communities and fostering growth in the agricultural industry. I had the best time talking to Melody, and I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation. Before we get to today's interview with Melody, it is getting to that time of year where I hit the road and get to come and meet all of the amazing folks in agriculture through all of the different conferences that I get to speak at and host. So if you're wondering where I'll be heading, You can head over to the link in my Instagram bio and see all of the events and register to connect with me either in person or online. I would love to see your happy face at an upcoming event. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Melody. Melody, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you today? Oh, I am living the dream. Excited to be here and have a conversation with you, Caitlin. I am so excited and so honored to be sitting here with you today. Melody and I were chatting before I hit record here, and the multifaceted life and times of Melody could honor a podcast episode for each. So we're going to cram as much as we can here with our time together so the listeners can get to know all of the wonderful things about you. Well, thank you. As I said, it's been a real varied journey to get to where I am today, but one I I 
And, you know, I love every step of it. Amazing. Amazing. So Melody, for the folks who are unfamiliar with you, tell us about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and how you got your start in agriculture. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know me, I am a rancher down in Southern Alberta. I'm tucked right by Waterton Lakes National Park. And I actually like to say I'm a third generation business owner who happens to operate a ranch. And our ranch focuses on horse breeding. And we now have some equine tourism, equine education. And so our journey here at Rocking Heart Ranch really started back in 1986. We ran a mixed farming operation in Saskatchewan. So my start in agriculture really began being at the knee of my dad and my mom, riding horses, feeding cattle, taking my naps in the big old case tractor as we were harvesting. And we moved to Southern Alberta when I was nine. Our family at that point, Saskatchewan, didn't have a real great future. So my parents up and moved us and we looked at every ranch from basically Edmonton South. We drove into this little slice of heaven here and the story continued from there. I have to say the reason why I'm in agriculture today is very much because I saw my mom who worked off the farm and on the farm and my dad who was probably one of the biggest influential factors in my life and said, you know what, kiddo, you can do anything you want to do. And he never treated me like a girl that was just supposed to be in the kitchen learning how to cook. I was his right-hand man for years because my brothers are quite a few years older than me. So, you know, I was the one out fencing with him, calving, pulling calves, all of that stuff. And so it to me, that's really where I got my start was on our family ranch. Your family ranch and where it's located, I have to say, is probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And I'm very lucky to live very close to where you are. Tell us more about the history of that piece of land and and your family ranch growing there and continuing that legacy. Yeah, so our ranch has got kind of a cool story. Like I said, we started in Saskatchewan, but we actually started, my grandparents started the ranch. It was a farm back then with my dad, but we used my great grandpa Joshua's war bonds to actually purchase our initial land. So the fact that, you know, my little Irish great grandfather came over and, you know, was able to provide us that start, it really started the legacy of us here. So down at where we're at now, we've evolved over the years and it's been a bit of a turbulent history, I guess you could say, with the ranch. So when we moved here in 86, we were a cow-calf operation. We raised some quarter horses, typical ranch. Where we're located at, our pasture land is not great, so diversification had to come into play. So by 2009, we had cow-calf, we had quarter horses, we had built a store for my mom when she retired from nursing, so we had a craft and antique store on the ranch. We had a subdivision, we had a gravel pit business, we were like firing on all cylinders. It was this crazy, crazy different kind of diversified operation we had. And then my dad got really, really sick, and he actually had a quadruple bypass, and we almost lost him. And that caused all of us to pause and really think about what the future of our ranch was going to be. And at that point, we knew it couldn't continue. All of these different balls that we had in the air, some some stuff had to give. So we sat down as a family and we started to have those hard conversations about succession. And it was decided at that point, my oldest brother and I would step in. We'd always been working and assisting and helping it support my parents, like do the kind of operations on the ranch. But at that point, it was really okay. You know what? We're going to we're going to take an even larger role and we're going to start this transition. So we sold the store that my mom had. You know what? We sold cow calf. We sold all of our cattle. 
And this was the second time we'd actually dispersed our herd. My dad first dispersed our herd in 1995 when me, his last hired man, was off to university and he was losing his hired man. All of our Angus cattle. I remember sitting in the stands at the auction, bawling my eyes out as I watched all of our cattle go through the ring. And then he picked up Longhorns within a, a year because he couldn't be without cattle. But in 09, we get, we sat him down and we said, what do you want to do, dad? We have a horse breeding operation and we have a cattle operation. What do you want to do? And him and my brother voted horses. I voted cattle. Well, we raised horses. So you can see where Mel kind of ended up in that vote. The democracy was good. So throughout the years, uh, in 2009, we've moved, we've transitioned to that. And then in 2017, the Kino wildfire hit our ranch hard. It actually burned everything to the ground except our shop. We lost our family home. We lost our barn, our arena, hay. We did not lose any livestock and people, though. And so we're really grateful for that. But at that point, there was another transition in our family. So my oldest brother and I were planning to take over and that succession had worked. You know, we were doing well. I was running the business at end and he was the genetics end. And at that point, he decided to step back. So I had to sit down with my husband and have a conversation about what are we doing? Is this ranch that's been around since the early 1900s done? Are we are we not going to continue on this legacy? And my dad at that point is in his mid seventies and he's like, I'm rebuilding. And I'm like, hell yeah, we're rebuilding. We're rebuilding. We decide the rebuild was instant. There was not a hesitancy for us. And if we were going to rebuild, it was just, what were we going to rebuild? Again, that pivot point kind of when a tragedy hits, what does the future of the ranch look like? So then we sat down and we said, okay, we're going to rebuild, but we are pivoting. So we are going to amp up our breeding operation for quarter horses. Prior to this, we'd been breeding like five mares. We now run 30 mares. I run 30 brood mares that I breed every year, along with my, again, I, I, I ranch with my parents here. They're in their late 70s, but they're still on the ranch with us and my husband, of course. So we 30 mares, we added equine tourism. We built a brand new arena where we're doing clinics. We're doing people can come and stay with us and ride Waterton. They can learn about horsemanship and just experience everything that this amazing Southwest piece of land and this corner has for, for tourism. So it's been a really interesting journey and a long history. I think the sad thing is probably is now I'm looking forward. I don't think there's anybody that's going to take over from me. So part of farm succession is also looking and forecasting 20 years down the road and going, what's it going to look like? And at this point, I don't know, because I don't think there's a next generation coming up at this at this point in time, but we'll see. So yeah, it's been a crazy journey. That is a crazy journey. And of ups and downs, the biggest down sticking out to me is the fire in 2017. And that fire was devastating. And for those who live in Southern Alberta or have visited the area uh, since then, uh, friends of mine from Ohio actually came up this summer and I took them to Waterton and they they were like, what happened to all the trees? And, you know, it's, it's something that, we kind of forget when we're tourists and we get to come and visit the area, but that's something that, you know, you are privy to seeing every year. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me and I'm kind of correlating and putting it all together of after going to Waterton after the fire and seeing the new growth that happened after the fire and talking to you and hearing about, okay, this has happened. Now what are we going to do to rebuild? It's kind of, you know, it's it's making sense in my mind. I hope it's making sense in everybody else's mind. You know, after this tragedy, like you said, what's your next step? What's going to happen? And in nature, new things start to grow. Things that haven't bloomed in hundreds and hundreds of years 
come back and they bloom. So being able to rebuild your ranch after that is, is truly remarkable to me. And being able to pivot to where you are today and making the business work for you and your life and doing what you want to do on your ranch, that in itself is an inspiration to a lot of people because I'm sure there's a lot of folks who would have been through that experience and thought, well, I'm done. Like it's too much to rebuild. So in expanding to the equine tourism and workshops and everything, what have been some of the biggest like aha moments that you've had with folks coming to your ranch and being able to learn with you and from your horses? You know, Waterton is like, I swear, the best kept secret out of all of the parks in Alberta. We talk Jasper, we talk Banff, we talk Kananaskis, all of that. And then when people come down here and they see the untouched natural beauty of Waterton, they are just amazed. Like, so I think for me, the biggest aha moment was I grew up being able to get on a horse and go ride the front range or the back range within 15 minutes. And I did not understand how lucky and fortunate I was. Like when you're 16, you think, right. You don't think of that stuff, right. You're like, Hey, I've had a bad day. I'm just going for, I'm just going to clear my head. Right. Look, right. You you just don't think of about the natural beauty and how that can resonate with you and, and kind of heal you. If that makes sense, kind of from internal. So I think for me, the biggest aha moment is having guests come out and when they go out for a ride or we take them on a ride out there and they're just in awe of their surroundings, of everything they see, the wildlife. And they're like, man, do you know how lucky you are to live here? It is really the practice of gratitude, I would say, is reinforced very much. I think the other thing that I learned is just how healing horses can be. So again, remember, I voted cattle. Okay. I've always been a cattle girl because to me, it's just, I don't know, not as much risk. They don't have as many feelings, right? Horses remember. They remember when you do something wrong to them or you, you know, like they've got this long-term memory, but they're also, I feel like, one of the most forgiving animals. So when I see people, my aha moment is when we're running our clinics and you see someone come in that's maybe a little timid, fearful. But by the end of that two-day clinic, this sense of confidence and just this empowerment, I'm like, yes, that is why we're doing this. Empowerment, confidence, building that trust, and just giving people another tool in their toolbox to go out and, and deal with life. I think that's been probably my, my second biggest aha moment. For sure. So you had mentioned earlier that you you went away to university. You had careers off of the ranch. What essentially made you decide that going back to the ranch full time was what you wanted to do? I was told at 18, and all of us kids were told this, before you come back, my, my father sat us down and he said, before you come back to the ranch full time, you have to go and build a life outside the ranch. You go build and show that you can build a life off the ranch before you come back. I knew in my heart, I was always coming home. It was just a matter of when I was coming home. So at that point, when I graduated from university, I thought to myself, I am going to take a bunch of different careers and I'm going to learn a bunch of transferable skills that I'm going to be able to bring back to the ranch and help it succeed. Because, you know, at that point, this is, 
I graduated university in 2000, right? The world has changed. But for me, transferable skills in all of the different industries I've worked with in the background, I have been able to bring all of those skills back to the ranch. So again, I knew I was coming home. I would have liked to come home sooner, but to be quite candid, it just growing up here, there's not as many advantages. And I think a lot of rural women face this. We're not close to a city. So with my kids, it was a matter of, you know, they wanted to play soccer. They wanted to have some access to some additional, you know, opportunities. So we split our time. We lived in Coaldale and, you know, my, I always say we lived in Coaldale Monday through Thursday and on the ranch Friday through Sunday. So once our youngest graduated and then with my dad and the fire and the whole transition thing, it was like, okay, this is the time. Not going to lie, scared shitless. Like that was a big jump to go and say, okay, we are like leaving and we are coming here. And I have a dream. I have a vision. We're just going to say, let's make it happen. And I, I don't know how many people I've had tell me. And members, people that are close to me that have said, you'll never make it go. You will, you will fail. You will. And I'm like, that just, I guess I'm that person. And Caitlin, it sounds like you are too. I'm like, you tell me I can't do something. Well, screw you. I'm going there and I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm the type of person though, that will cry while I'm saying that, but yes, I will move through it <laughs> and get it done. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. There's been moments within this interview that I'm like, cause to me, crying is a show of fierceness. It's not. Okay, good. That's great. <laughs> so you and I are on the same. It's like, yeah, no, you can tell me that, but we I'm have crying, a- but it's not because you're winning right now. Right. We, we have a saying here on the podcast and it's um, basically, it happens to me all of the time and people know this. I say, I'm getting a little misty right now and there's the little, the waterworks that will come up, but it's really, you know, I know when I've connected with somebody when they've told me, they're like, well, somebody told me I couldn't do it. So that gave me the permission to say, screw you and just go do it. Because I, I don't, is it spite? Is it like willpower? I'm not sure what it is, but it's tenacity and I'm here for it. So <laughs> you mentioned a few times about transferable skills. And I think people really misjudge that or don't give enough credit to transferable skills. I know for me, this is a personal story. This happened a few years ago. We were hauling manure in rock trucks and I was driving down the road in like my brother's like wet dream of a Tonka truck going down the road full of manure in the back. And my dad is sitting in the passenger seat looking at me and smiling. And I said to him, I was like, I'm just convinced that you are so glad you paid for me to go to college and like get like a management degree and all of these things. And he just looked at me and he said, that doesn't matter. He was like, as long as you're happy doing what you're doing, those skills, they'll pay your bills somewhere else. Like it doesn't matter. All of these things really add up. So talk to us about your career and your journey off of the farm before you went back, because it's a vast one as well. Uh, Yeah, it is. So again, I set out with the goal of I'm going back to the ranch at some point. I'm going to learn everything I can to benefit me when I get back. So after graduation, my first job was actually sales. I sold photocopiers and fax machines. Okay, So for those of you that are young listening to this, yes, I'm 46. So I I was at the tail end of fax machines. I'll just put that out there. Okay. Um, And that career 
granted it was only 18 months. I feel like it was the longest 18 months of my life, but it taught me how to connect with people, learn how to handle rejection and to really persevere. Right. Then I went, so all to me, perseverance, the ability to that interpersonal ability to connect with people, transferable skills, doesn't matter what industry I'm going to. I need to learn how to handle rejection and not take it personally. I need to be able to connect with people. Right. And have that perseverance. Then I went into the hospitality world, tourism, and I spent seven years in tourism industry at director of sales. And then I was a general manager of a hotel in Lethbridge. So here I am at 27 years old. I'm an, I'm a mom. I got a baby on my backpack, actually on my back in a backpack. And I'm managing this hotel in, in Lethbridge. And the skills there again, it taught me was customer relations, right? Dealing with difficult people, managing staff. Right. And it didn't matter if I was selling photocopiers or if I was selling hotel rooms. Product is a project. A widget is a widget. Right. It's all in how you sell and how you market it, how you talk about your unique, your unique sales proposition, how you make customers feel treasured and precious so that they want to come back. Again, a transfer of that, those skills I'm using in our equine tourism business right now. How to make those moments extra special at the ranch. I learned that in my tourism. Then I took over and went into, uh, I was the executive director of the Canadian Home Builders Association in Lethbridge. So it's a nonprofit, not for profit, but I worked with a bunch of construction guys. There, I really learned about board governance, management, the difference between operations and government, volunteer recruitment, volunteer management, right? Government relations and advocacy. That was where I really started to cut my teeth in that area. And then I went to a private company. I worked for Greer Homes. And I have to tell you, this was the start of my mentorship because I actually had an amazing mentor and she is still a friend and a mentor to me, Jean Greer McCarthy, owner of Greer Homes. She took me under her wing when she was president of the Home Builders Association. And I actually moved over to work for her and her husband at Greer Homes. And again, construction industry. I'm on job sites. We're building houses. We're selling houses. I don't have a construction background. I've got a ranching background where duct tape, twine, and that kind of stuff can figure, but that doesn't kind of meet building boat standards, right? <laughs> so again, though, customer relationship, project management, that's where I really kind of cut my tool on project management. Financial management, understanding balance sheets, cash flows, profit and loss statements, all of those aspects that we deal with on the ranch every month, right? So those transferable skills. And then I spent a little bit of time actually working in social services, a great organization, Lethbridge Family Services. They needed someone to start their advancement and education department and outreach department, really. That was really donor management. And I tip my hat to every individual that works in social services. They provide amazing care for the people that need it the most. And, you know, I, that still drives me to be involved with a lot of nonprofit organizations and charities to this day. And then I had an opportunity, though, and this is probably, besides my stint in tourism and construction, I actually have to say my next job and my final job before I came to the ranch full time is my favorite. I always say it's the sweetest. So hosting was up for the Alberta Sugar Beet Growers. And a friend of mine reached out to me and said, Mal, they're looking for an executive director. You need to go do this job. And I said to my friend, what the hell is a sugar beet? You know, I grew up in Waterton. Tabor's really not that far away. Like we're talking an hour and a half, two hours. And so I applied for it because again, over the course of years, I've been executive directors at all these different places. 
I wanted to get back into egg. egg. I was tired of having one foot in egg on weekends and then my other foot not. And I'm like, I want to be an egg 24 seven. So long story short, I got shortlisted the night before the interview. I am Googling and calling people to try to find out what a sugar beet is, what it looks like, what the industry is about. And thankfully the board took a chance on me and I just wrapped up seven amazing years working for, I say the sweetest growers in the, in Canada, the sugar beet growers in Southern Alberta. And so it's, it's, that's kind of it. But all of these transferable skills now that I've picked up, whether it's government relations, financial management, human resource management, all of that stuff, tourism, all has come back and I'm using every day here on the ranch. And I think that's what the people need to understand. A widget is a widget. It's about the people Absolutely. and the connections. Well, and it, like you said, it's the transferable skills because all of those things have made you a successful third generation business owner because you have all of these different hats that you can put on at different times when you need them. And I love that you were Googling what a sugar beet is because I have to tell you, Melody, and I told you this before we hit record, but I will shamelessly tell everybody I was Googling. I was like, I didn't think they grew sugar beets near Waterton. So I'm Googling this and obviously they don't, but it's the transferable skills. You don't have to grow a sugar beet to be able to advocate for sugar beet growers. You just have to be able to communicate with them to what see what their needs are, what their wants are, what they're struggling with, all of the things about the sugar beets. Are you looking to supercharge your farm business skills? Register for a Farm Credit Canada event. FCC events are designed to sharpen your management practices and build personal and professional growth. They offer in-person and virtual options, and the best part? They are free to attend. FCC events brings experts from all areas of finance, personal development, transition, economics, and more to explore topics important to today's farm business owners and entrepreneurs. Gain practical advice, connect with peers, and get the knowledge that you need to take your operation to the next level. As a host of previous FCC events, I've personally witnessed farmers gain a deeper understanding of our industry and expand their network with folks who share the same passion and dedication to their farm businesses. I'm looking forward to heading out on the road again this winter to host the FCC Young Farmers Summit, and I hope to see you there. For more information and to check out the latest event lineup, head to fcc.ca forward slash events or the link in today's show notes. So sugar beet crops aren't something that, like you said, like a lot of people are aware of. They We know about them in Southern Alberta because we have a very big population of sugar beet growers near us. What are some of the challenges that the producers face as sugar beet growers? Yeah, you know what? This is a really interesting crop. Um, So the reason why it's grown in Southern Alberta is just our climate is great. The soil is great. And more importantly, we have irrigation, right? But when we look at sugar beet farmers as a whole, and even when I started uh, with the organization seven years ago, we had over 200 growers. There's now like 150, 160. Now farms are getting bigger, right? So we're seeing that na- that natural amalgamation. 
But I think the biggest challenges we've got as an industry still facing the sugar beet producers is number one, limited processing capacity. We only have one refiner left in Canada that actually utilizes sugar beets. So to throw some numbers out, when we look at Canada as a whole, and all the sugar we use, we use about 1.4 million tons of sugar in Canada. Okay. Whether that's for sugar containing products or to feed bees or, you know, all the various things. The sad thing is only 8% of that is actually supplied by Canadian farmers. 92% of it is supplied by raw cane, by cane refiners or cane farmers in places like Brazil, Guatemala, Vietnam. So our biggest challenge is producers across the country, like sugar beets used to be grown in Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, you know, across the regions, no longer. We grow them in Alberta. And so the fact is, because we're not using, we, we could grow more here. But because the processor would, would rather import that cane sugar, because we do not have a government policy that prioritizes domestic production. And when we look at our other major trading nations like UK, like the US, they all have sugar policies. We do not. And that's why we rely so heavily on foreign cane sugar coming in. And it's fair to say the way that cane sugar is produced is not as in an ethical as ethical and sustainable as what the growers are doing here in Southern Alberta. Right. So just for curiosity's sake, are they taking that sugar, the raw cane sugar from overseas because it's cheaper for them to process or cheaper for them to buy? Or why are they not using? Yeah, great question, Caitlin. So our growers have always had to compete with the number 11. So world sugar's traded on the commodity on on the on the, the markets, right? So there's a number 11 and that's where raw cane is and our growers have always had to compete with that price. It's just the fact that when we did not have a sugar policy, it became they they got their infrastructure set up for cane, right? And so they've just continued to utilize that is that cane. So I think, you know, in the bigger populations, like there's a there's a refinery out in Vancouver. Actually, it's on strike right now. So there's a bit of a sugar shortage in Vancouver happening. You know, they're bringing the boats. So it's maybe from a transportation. It might be cheaper for them. But when we look at the prairies, right, because we're not close to ports, it doesn't make sense for that cane sugar to come on the prairies. But the sugar that's grown here in southern Alberta is really only used in Alberta and a little bit in Saskatchewan. Right. Like there's no, and manageable, like manageable, we used to have a refinery. Right. But as soon as the government said, you know what, we're going to open our borders to everything. We're not going to do any kind of domestic production prioritization. That's when the whole industry flipped on its head. Right. So what is the future of sugar beets in our great country? Yes. So, you know, I will say the association, the board, when I started with the board here in Alberta, and we also have a federal uh, a federal organization, the Canadian Sugar Beet Producers Association, that board really took a hard look about what the future entails, and they understood that there needed to be some diversification. We needed to start having some difficult conversations. And so right now, prime example is that group is working on the development of a potential plant that will utilize sugar beets for alternative uses. So not refined sugar, but things like renewable fuel cells, road deicer, a bunch of these other different things that we're currently importing in, but we could supply at home. We're also having conversations with the federal government about there's still opportunity for us to put a sugar policy in. 
that would help encourage domestic production of sugar beets. And so, you know, the board is being pretty progressive on this and, and wants to see these changes because if these changes don't happen, the sugar beet industry will always be here, you know, because we have a we have a trade agreement with the United States where so many tons can go into the United States and it has to be sugar beet sugar. So as long as that TRQ is there, there's always going to be a plant here. Right. Um, but it might be small. You know, we might see those grower that grower number shrink from 150 to 30. And that's scary because sugar beets are also really good in rotation with cereals, potatoes and all the specialty crops in southern Alberta. So a lot of people tend to focus on, oh, well, it's sugar. Okay, but let's talk about the diversity. Let's talk about crop and soil health. Let's talk about how all of this, you know, when we're pulling the nitrogen out from deep in the soil because of the deep taproot of the sugar beet, like there's this, there's a whole nother aspect of this that needs to be considered versus just the surface level. Oh, it's sugar beets and sugar. Right. Well, and like you said, it's diversification and whether it's diversification on the sugar beet farm or diversification of what can we use the sugar beet for. I think that's in any crop that we have and any crop that we grow and really any business that you have, at least since 2020, I know a lot of people have had to diversify a lot of different things in the world that we live in today. Right. So, when I so. Pivot. I, I hate using that word sometimes because I feel like it's so overused, but I'm like, I feel like we're constantly pivoting. Right. Well, and you have to, right. And if you want to stay relevant, if you want to stay profitable, if you want People have had to pivot their whole lives, depending on what's been happening in the world, what happens in your family, any of these things. So you had mentioned previously about mentorship and having a mentor of your own. I didn't grow up in the agriculture industry. I grew up in Lethbridge and I I moved to a farm 20 minutes away from my family front door. And I have to say it some days, even still, however many years later, it feels like I live in a completely different world. So <laughs> I'm always so grateful for specifically the women in the agriculture industry of the mentorship that they've provided me and the friendship that they've provided me and, you know, the open arms and the wisdom and the coffee shop advice, I guess, from from the women in agriculture. But why was it so important for you to continue and to be a mentor? yourself, specifically for women in agriculture? Yeah. So, you know, I was given a real gift when Jean entered my life as a young mom who was trying to balance career, kids, everything, while also building community. And I look back, my grandma Lil was a Royal Purple volunteer. Like she was like the queen bee of Royal Purple. I don't know what that's all, but building community is so important. And the only way we can continue to build community is to mentor the next generation to ensure that we have a community left to remain to continue building if that makes sense so after you know Jean took me under her wing and I felt like I had someone to talk to ask the stupid questions to because let's be fair no woman wants to walk into a room and be that woman that asks the stupid question and all the eyes go oh right we don't want that so I had a safe space to ask those what I thought were stupid questions to talk about what I needed to do and learn to grow so for me I look at it and our ranch really focused on on ensuring youth like we've always wanted to encourage youth in our industry, because, as I said, without the youth, it's not to grow. So we made a formal commitment as a ranch to really focus on engaging youth and getting youth back in the saddle. That's what we called it, getting youth back in the saddle. And so the ranch 
we do this through mentorship and we did that through finding up and coming trainers that maybe were just starting out and were didn't have a well-known name and we would hire them they would have one of our horses they would work with it we'd bring them back to a challenge we'd promote their business we'd help you know kind of facilitate that so, so that's kind of like the business angle to me mentorship that the business angle is important but it's more about the personal level so number 1 i felt like you know what i was blessed to have a mentor i need to pay that forward Number two, women in agriculture, because there's not a lot of faces around the table. I feel it is. And and I'll be honest, what I'm about to say is going to piss some people off. If you are a woman in agriculture, you have a responsibility to bring that next generation to the table. Hard stop. How you do it is up to you. But you need to get and you need to be that that shoulder for them to lean on to talk to. So for me, I really started actually at the sugar bee growers. I started a summer student program. And it just so happened that I was getting a lot of sugar beets daughters, like sugar beet farmers daughters. And I love that. So we started the mentorship program. And over the years, I've had the ability to mentor some amazing young ladies. One actually, Michaela Gross, uh, she got a $10,000 Rotary Ag scholarship last year, and she is in ag marketing and doing phenomenal well. She's also a horse trainer. I actually had the ability to mentor her in sugar beets and through horsemanship. And I am just so blessed to have met her. She, when I look at her and all of the other young ladies that sit at the table with me and that I have conversations with, I'm excited. I'm like, man, this industry is going to rock because we've got some amazing youth coming up that are just thinking differently, challenging things, being those disruptors and upsetting the good old boys club. And I love it. I, I absolutely love it. So. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I think to me, mentorship is important if we're going to ensure the industry is around for the next generation. And I think mentorship needs to be looked at as a responsibility of our generation. I couldn't agree with you more. And the way that you're describing your mentee and, you know, how much they bring to your life, I think that's kind of the unkept secret of mentorship is, you know, you are, you are technically supposed to be there for them to learn from you. But I think when you are the mentor, you learn just as much as you are teaching them. A hundred percent. You know, I've got another young lady I mentored, uh, Kelly Ober is her name. She actually started her own marketing company, Ridge Marketing, and she does our social media for the ranch and watching her grow. And in all fairness, when I first met Kelly, it was personally, it was through my husband and he's friends with her dad. This was a young lady that had never really been involved on the farm. And when I started, when I started dating my husband, I went to Brandy's and her dad looked at me and he's like, what are you doing here? And I said, I grew up doing this, like just put me to work. And then Kelly could get involved. And now I've watched her grow. And you are so right. I've learned so much from her. When I have a stupid social media question, you know, like I was her mentor, but I'm like, hey, Kel. Okay, I'm not phoning, actually. I'm texting. I'm texting her saying, hey, Kelly, uh, what should we do about this? Right. And she's become a lifelong a friend. And right. that's what I love about mentorship that develops into that friendship. And it is both ways. And so Absolutely. many people don't realize that. Yeah. Melody, what advice do you have for someone listening who is looking to get more involved in the egg industry off of their farm, whether that's through B 
being on a board or being a part of something or just advocating for the industry, what advice do you have for them? Number one, swallow the big lump of fear in your throat and make the leap. So the example I'm going to use is I'm 20 years old. I've just graduated from university. I go to the to the Lethbridge Chamber of Commerce. They have this committee. It was Agricultural Industrial Transportation Committee. My first meeting, I'm looking around the room. I am the youngest by probably 25 years. Scared the shit out of me. But I made the leap and I went, no, I'm here to learn. So number one, swallow the fear. Number two, approach it from a place of learning, not a place of you know everything. Approach it from a place of learning. And number three, find that mentor or that champion. I soon found an individual that you know, became, he's a friend of mine today. Dennis Chinner is his name. And he took me again. He introduced me to people. He was very open to having women at the table. So I think the other thing too is, if you're on the farm ladies and your husband's involved or your brother's involved, start going to meetings with them. Get them to help you get to the table. Okay. If, 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 if you do, if you are feeling like you just can't get to the table yourself, look at your contacts and see who can help you get to the table. So that to me is the biggest thing is swallow the fear for sure. Go from a place of learning, find someone that can help make you build that connection. Whether I really believe like industry association committees, there are so many great committees that industry associations have. That's a great starting point, right? The other th one I'm going to tell you is, and I love this, love this conference. And I know you had her on as a guest, Iris Mex Advancing Women in Agriculture Conference. I've gone now for, the, oh, I don't know how many years I've gone, three or four. I love that conference. And I think every woman in agriculture, if you want to connect with other women, if you want to start to build that network, and be inspired, that's the place to go. You know, I'll be honest, by the time that conference comes, I, my my kind of levels are, I'm a little depleted. And I go to that, okay, no, I'm ready to kick ass again, let's go. And so I think that's the other thing, it's finding other women that want to also have that same experience, right? And then you can share that journey together. So it's not just you alone by yourself, it's you've got two or three other ladies that are with you that you're like, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go to this conference together, or we're going to go to this meeting together. Right. But when you get to that meeting, this is one of the pitfalls I always see. You'll see a group come in or a couple of young ladies come in and they will automatically glob onto each other because they're safety, right? We feel comfortable hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you more, but then the two of you need to go and, and, and start to shake hands. You need just to push yourself out of that comfort zone. Right. And that can feel really like that's scary for sure. But Again, just swallow the fear, take the leap. Right. Sound advice for really any part of life. But when it comes to, you know, wanting to be more involved in the industry and, you know, having your voice heard, those are great pieces of advice. And I'll see you. I'll see you in March at the the next uh, Advancing Women because I, I think I can announce it. I'll be on the stage. I'll be speaking at this one. So. <laughs> Awesome, yeah. Caitlin. Yeah. So, well, I have a big hug for you there. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, for sure. Melody, it has been my absolute pleasure to uh, share your story today. Uh, the last question that I'm going to ask you is a question that we ask everyone. Uh, and what that is, what is the most rewarding part about being a rural woman for you? I believe rural women have the ability to live their life on their own terms more easily than our urban counterparts. 
because the societal pressures that we see in the urban world about what you wear, how you present yourself. I find, I think the biggest benefit is we are able to be more authentic about who we are. Boots and jeans is a very acceptable look around my ranch, one that I feel very comfortable in. So I think, I think that's the biggest reward is we get to be who we are without sometimes as much scrutiny as our, as our urban counterparts. For sure. I have to admit, most of the time when I'm out doing chores, it's boots and sweatpants, but uh, (laughs) nobody can judge me because I'm out there all by myself. That's exactly it. You know, unless my husband snaps a picture of my outfits, which he has occasionally done when I'm in pajama. You know, when we're foaling into 3 a.m. and I'm in pajama pants and my muck boots, right? And he's like, that's a good look, hon. I'm like, yeah, I know. Thank you. (laughs) This is what you married. Exactly. And probably building community. Sorry. You know what? I think being an authentic and an ability to build community and help others. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty damn cool. It's, it's something. And it's something that I think we are really privileged as rural women that we, we get to do. And I always feel really fortunate for the women who have opened their doors and who have invited the younger generations in and have invited the folks who didn't grow up like them to the table to hear their stories and to learn from each other. And uh, I've learned a lot from you today, Melody, and I'm very grateful uh, for you to share your story with us. So thank you. Thank you. Now I'm in Misty as Because it truly is my honor because, as I said, just a little girl in Southern Alberta doing her thing. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? Absolutely. So you can connect with me. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a website. I'm on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. So Twitter, Sweet Ranch Gal. Facebook, you can connect with me through our ranch, which is Rocking Heart Ranch. And yeah, I would love to, if anybody's got questions, if anybody ever wants to come see what we're doing, come on out. Yeah. I love to have coffee. As my mom says, coffee's always on. That's that's the saying. Perfect. I will link all of those links in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Thank you again so much for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. 
Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. Did you know that you can get this same great episode of the Rural Woman Podcast ad-free? I get it. Listening to ads during a podcast isn't always my favorite either. But in order to keep the lights and coffee pot on here at the Rural Woman Podcast Studios, they are necessary. I am so grateful to each and every one of my sponsors, but if you yourself would like to skip the ads while supporting the show, consider joining me over on Patreon. Patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast get ad-free episodes starting at Tier 5 on their podcast player of choice each week, plus some other great benefits. Find out more by heading to the link in today's show notes to learn how you can become a patron through Patreon.